Hello, my name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, de-political-policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. Well, 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 look at what we got here. Some freaks listening to the Oddcast featuring the Odd Man Out. And I am so glad that you have chosen to do so. Now, I've got a little something special for you since I've been a little lax in doing shows and posting on social media lately. I've been doing a lot of research and I think I'm going to have some great stuff for you in the coming year. Uh, I was on my friend Jack's show, Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, a few weeks ago. And we did an episode on the origins of the New World Order, the push for globalism. Yeah, I know I've covered that on this show a lot. And there's always new stuff to talk about and more information that I've found. Jack's audience is more of a, a Trump audience, a younger audience. I think that they're unaware of some of this information, probably a lot of it, because most people are. And so I thought that reaching a new audience is always good. And he was very kind to allow me to come on there and talk about it. I get overly excited about this stuff and I often lose focus when I'm trying to talk about it. There's just so much information. So much time has passed. It's such a rich history. But anyway, uh, I wanted to share that episode with you. Uh, Some of you are familiar with this information. And there's going to be bits of new information in there. And then at the end, we do about an hour. I'm going to do about 30 minutes or so by myself uh, from some more information that I have uncovered that I'd just like to add to what we did together. Again, I want to thank Jack and invite you to listen to Conspiracy or Just Coincidence. And of course, I'll put his show notes or his links in my show notes, rather. And I want to thank you once again for listening. I don't want to ramble on too much about it. I just want to say that until we understand the past, how we got to where we are today, how the world, this globalism, this push for global governance has happened and how it formed, then we're we're never going to understand exactly what's going on. Not only that, obviously, we're probably never going to beat these 
rich globalists. It's this this huge machine, as you guys know, and uh, it's just too powerful. But possibly we can start to do things like worry about our own communities, worry about our own families and friends, start doing things a little bit differently locally, kind of worrying about things a little bit more locally. We're not going to beat globalism. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's went too far. You know, I hate to say it, but I'm also a realist or I try to be not just a conspiracy theorist. I'm a realist. So anyway, I think that, uh, you know, we may be able to change things in our own little worlds, but unless we really understand the history, that hidden history that we haven't been taught in school and on TV and in pop culture, then we'll we'll still make the same mistakes, even locally. And we'd like to, uh, I'd like to pass on this information to the next generations so they would understand, hey, this is how that happened and we need to avoid these mistakes, you know, in, in the future. So I'm not going to try and fill you with any kind of false hope or anything like that. I don't know where things are going, but I don't see them getting any better as far as beating back the new world order. So let's, let's focus on that history. Let's look at where it came from. Let's look at where these ideas came from, where they originated, and then go from there. So without any further nonsense, I could ramble on for an hour probably about the things that have been going on, but just know that no rebellion would ever last, even if it was successful on a small scale, if you didn't know the history and the mistakes that were made in the past. Okay, so let's get right into my appearance on Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, shall we? Welcome to another episode of Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Today, I have the probably the guy who's been on my show now more than anybody a guy that I've developed a great relationship with on Twitter, Odd Man Out. So, Odd Man, thanks for being on the show, dude. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate you agreeing to do the show with me, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, dude. And I really just, I really, you put so much work into this, man. I respect all your hard work. I know how much goes into it. So, I'm really excited to dive into the full true path of kind of the, the CFR, right? Right. Yeah. Really. Um, the New World Order, kind of uh, the modern idea of New World Order. I, my intentions really to with doing this show is kind of like equipping people with how this all began and kind of leading all the way up to modern times, because I think it goes directly to what's going on right now with the Great Reset. Um, and I, you saw my, uh, my uh, tweet earlier. I just realized that the Council on Foreign Relations was officially formed in uh, 1921. So 2021. Wow. Look at that, dude. So that's right after when I, I'm so bad at world war one. That was right. Yeah. So right after world war one. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. uh, and they, yeah, the kind of their intention with uh, starting, you know, right. Because they really uh, pushed world war one to cause a lot of chaos and right. dead and stuff like that. Right. But they wanted to really form a world, a world government uh, right after world war one. And they hoped that that would, make everybody miserable enough to do that but uh, <laughs> that's dude yeah like league of nations right wasn't that uh exactly that? yeah yeah so we'll start wherever you want to start i i'm we're like jumping around so however you want to take us off go for it dude yeah man well it uh really starts with a guy named john ruskin 
uh, he was a professor and an author. And one of his uh, pupils was uh, a young Cecil Rhodes. And uh, Ruskin was like one of these uh, England first kind of guys, British. You know, he thought the Brits were the very best in the world and that basically they should take over the world. And he kind of drilled that into some of his students' heads and it stuck with uh, Cecil Rhodes. And just a few years later, um, he was funded by the Rothschilds to go to Africa, to Zambezi, Africa, to mine their gold and diamonds. And uh, And what year was this? Sorry, just so people have a timeline. And so that was, uh, I think, around 1880, if I'm not mistaken. So like late, got it. So they, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And um, he uh, immediately you know, struck gold, basically, you know, I mean, he was just, he was making a fortune. And uh, in no time at all, he was nearly as rich as the Rothschilds. But um, yeah, and they say the term blood diamonds came from him working the natives so hard in those mines. And it really uh, got that's how come all those Europeans and the, the Brits got over to Africa there to uh, South Africa was because of the gold rush and the diamond rush. Okay. Everybody was over there trying to uh, you know, get in on it. So, right. um, but um, you know, that English are the best, the English are the best stuck with uh, Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, kind of got this idea that uh, also he would like for the Brits to take back America and take, take huh. over the rest of South Africa and, and the world and uh, he actually was pretty open about that, um, but uh, he befriended or he was already friends with all these well-to-do Brits. And okay. uh, a lot of them were in government and in, uh, you know, in positions of power, right. in certain businesses and stuff right. like that. So um, he, he had this idea that, you know, they could take over and, and infiltrate governments of the world mm-hmm. and, um, you know, in, in businesses if they got into good positions in, in businesses around the world, then, you know, it would be Brits leading this, this charge. And basically they would take over economically, you know, as one way to do it as well as the government. So basically he got all of his buddies together and they happened to be almost every one of them were Freemasons. Um, And that's just an an aside, but uh, I think it must have something to do with it because he said uh, in his writings that um, they could take on, part of what the Freemasons do as far as organization, but they could uh, go a step further and uh, be like the Jesuits because they were known for being relentless. Uh, Their uh, motto is, uh, you know, the ends justify the means or the means justify the ends or whatever. Right, right. The ends justify the means. Excuse me. I'm excited. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I love talking about this. No, dude. Great. Great. Yeah. Uh, by any means necessary, basically. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he talked about that and he got all these guys together and they formed this group called the Society of the Elect. Okay. And uh, it was everybody in there was somebody of prestige and power. He had uh, newspaper columnists and business tycoons, wow. bankers. Still even then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because um, he knew that they had a lot of influence even back then. Right. And so um, he had the, uh, I think Lord Nathan Rothschilds was uh, the head of the Bank of England, and he was a member. And uh, they really became pretty powerful pretty quickly because they already had the cloud and everything. Right. And he said in a, he had a book, a small short book called Confessions of Faith. 
And he said sure. that they needed to form a secular type of church aimed at expanding wow. the British Empire. Huh. So I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty bold. Yeah, that's wild. But, and he, he definitely knew what he wanted to do. And he was only in his early 20s at this point, but he wow. already had decided, hey, this is what I want to do. And so uh, he started having his first will drawn up when he was, I think, 22 or 23, which sounds insane. Jeez, yeah. But he said that's your early. Right. Yeah. Talk about prepared. <laughs> right. Yeah. But somehow he knew that he was going to die at a relatively young age. And I believe he did die at 49, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. It was around, he was around 50. Uh, but at, by that time, he had had uh, seven different wills drawn up. Wow. And uh, in those wills, he had specific details on how he wanted to form these other secret societies and basically move all over the world and kind of get into every government and every every position of power he could have his, you know, his people in right. to form this global governance. And, you know, at wow. the time, of course, ran by Brits and that's kind of changed over time. Right. But uh, that was his original idea. And when he, uh, he left his fortune when he did pass, I think he died in 1902. So okay. that was right at the turn of the century. There. Right. But uh, he left it to his best friend, uh, this guy named Lord Milner. And uh, there's a book called Lord Milner's War, and I think it's about him starting World, World War One. It basically makes wow. the case that he he helped start World War One, but um, he left his wills in uh, in control of Lord Milner, and uh, so he formed these right right off the bat. As soon as he died, he formed these roundtable groups, ah. and that's where the Council on Foreign Relations comes from. Uh, they huh. were groups that would go that be formed in every large uh, city and country okay. around the world, especially country. And they eventually went on to put them in certain cities as well. But the first one was uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Okay. And uh, that's in England. And right. some people call that Chatham House because that's the uh, house. That I've they, heard I've heard that like phrase or that name before. Right. You might have heard. um Chatham House rules. And okay. what that is, is basically what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They, they ah, have this thing wow. where it's like, you you know, you can talk about anything at Chatham House, but it does not leave Chatham House. So it was an know. actual like clubhouse? Yes. Yep. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's still there today. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, uh, check them out on uh, Twitter. And they've got several offshoots too, but uh, I think they all That's have the funny. Chatham House title. Yeah, and I've even seen um, like uh, videos of Parliament recently, and right. they'll just bring up Chatham House and Parliament. So it's like they know that uh, mm -hmm. their members are in Chatham House, but they're not right. allowed to specifically say what they're what they talk about, like that Fight Club rules. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, wow. uh, and then they then they formed uh, in 1921. So they had all these different groups, and but they didn't name the Council on Foreign Relations until uh, 1921. That was their okay. official official time of um, you know forming it. So, you know, here in a, a month or so, less than a month, it'll be 100 years That's of the so Council wild. on Foreign Relations. Yeah. <laughs> wow, dude. Wow. But uh, yeah, and um, they really, uh, you know, they had another 
group within this round table, this is one of the newer things to me. And I want to do a show just solely on it because it sounds so intriguing, but the top of the top of the round table groups uh, with Lord Milner was called the Pilgrim Society. And I don't know exactly ah. why they chose that name. Like from uh, England, you had the Rothschilds, you had Jacob Schiff who uh, went on to help form the, the federal reserve. Here right. In the state. You had Andrew Carnegie, uh, JP Morgan, Wow. Um, you had uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, when, when he uh, joined. That's when uh, I think that he got a lot of ideas from this, uh, these roundtable groups mm -hmm. because he basically just went in and bought everything after that. And uh, <laughs> I, it sounds like it's just like a like. Uh, I don't know if you watch DC Comics, but the bad guys, what do they call it? The Injustice League. That's literally, like, that's what I imagine. Like, all these so-called titans of industry or whatever you want, just talking about how can they push their will on, on the people, right? That's what it sounds yeah. like. It's a, that, that was exactly it. You know, that, uh, that led to, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that led to the, uh, founding the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. which was totally done you know, underhanded at an island resort, the people that formed it, you know, they didn't even give their names to the, the other people. It was wow. kind of, this, yeah, it was formed under secrecy at uh, Jekyll Island right. in Georgia. In 1917, right? I believe so. That's when it was official. Yeah, I think that was the same year uh, that the uh, income tax was formed as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And so you talk about two things that that basically control our money system and, and control us. And that's yeah. basically, I think when, uh, in my opinion, that's when really the country changed forever. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people didn't, you know, had no idea and still don't know. No, <laughs> but uh, no. Isn't the income tax we could literally, that usually doesn't even go to like programs. It goes to paying the interest that we accumulate from the fed. I'm pretty like at least a large yeah. percentage of it does. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can see how, how huge the, the, the federal government is. There's no way that anything that big could ever, ever run efficiently. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. And it's just, uh, it's, it's hard to even find out how many uh, offices and agencies there are, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, they, uh, you know, they formed that, uh, the, uh, the Pilgrim Society and, um, of course, they wanted to basically that's when they went beyond just having uh, it be the Brits. It was the Americans and the Canadians as well, because they wanted to uh, get the heads of business and government from the English speaking countries. And those were the two main ones they wanted right. to uh, include in there. And so that was basically a way of all these uh, elites taking control of everything, you know. Wow. And um, they were able to get their guys in places, uh, in positions in, in all these different, uh, businesses and governments. And, right. uh, and that's basically what they've been doing ever since. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's, um, they had uh, something called, uh, a circle of initiates, which, which you can't find too much about them, but that was the younger guys. Uh, and in, um, uh, Rhodes wills, he, uh, was pretty specific in there. He wanted to get, single men from Ivy league schools, uh, because he said, if they were single, no children, no wives, they would much be much uh, more focused on wow, his goal dude. of, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine 
especially nowadays, we get so sidetracked and it's hard to remember what happened yesterday, you know, but uh, people being that driven and that meticulous. And so he was able to, in his twenties, start drawing up these plans to, that would, that would last at least a hundred years, you know? And that's why, like, you almost think like, did he like buy him, you know what I mean? Like buy a 20 year old thinking, I mean, that today you would never obviously see that, but like, who was he getting, you know, was this just his goal? You know what I mean? Like, where was he getting this inspiration from? Right. Yeah, I know. It's it's just amazing. It almost seems uh, beyond human kind of. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he had this uh, another group called the Association of Helpers. And that was like the mid-level people okay. who would uh, also be, you know, compared to the everyday guy, these people are very well. Still powerful. Do, so. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so he, he had it all worked out. Uh, of course, he by this time he was dead and his plan was in play. Um, and uh, his biographer, this lady named uh, Sarah Millen, she said the government of the world was Rhodes' simple desire to control the government of the world, of course, would take considerable amounts of money. But anyway, that was his, you know, that was his uh, that dream. wild, though. And, and like by 1904, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds had, uh, you know, they were both a part of those groups. They'd funded the Japanese against the Russians because uh, they wanted to weaken Russia and get their oil fields. They wanted to get control of their oil fields. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that till recently either. But um, the, even though the, the Russians ended up uh, losing, they... Uh, the czars would not sell their oil <laughs> to them. That's awesome. I had so no idea that, they even fought, dude. Yeah, like, I know. Or that's that so American to say, right? Like there's only right. a few wars and we've been in all of them, but. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you know, somebody said uh, once you never hear about the war of 1812 because I think Canada kind of kicked our asses. And so we don't talk about that war. Huh? <laughs> yeah. But I didn't, yeah, we don't, I didn't even know Canada was involved. I thought it was like, uh, I thought it was a way to bankrupt the U S from what I remember, like the UK. I don't even know what the basis was of that war. Yeah. I would have to go back and look as well. Yeah. Sure. But that's funny though. So, you know, when uh, the czars refused to sell the, the oil, to the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. uh, they got pissed. And that's when they decided to, uh, Jacob Schiff decided to fund Trotsky to go back over to uh, Russia and start the, the Bolshevik revolution. Right, right. So that it's just wild. It's crazy. And, you know, they, they really wanted to start the first world war, you know, to create debt and to uh, kind of like move everything in the way of where people would be so basically so dependent on the government and right. des- desperate that they would give up their sovereignty. Uh, and that's where the league of nations came in and, and the council was all over that, of course, but, <laughs> oh man. And the one thing that I noticed that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, about the council. So their basic mantra is uh, disarmament and uh, the ending of state wow, sovereignty. Really? Yeah. And, and the ending of state sovereignty. Now, this is something that blows my mind when I really start to do the, the, the studying of the CFR and how they've been involved in all these different wars. Uh, they really, in the late 30s, by that time, they had gotten involved in, in uh, our uh, military and in, in like the Department of Defense and the 
I forget what it was called at the time, but uh, they've really been embedded in our military ever since. Now, the thing that drives me crazy is why would the Department of Defense, why would the Secretary of State be in these uh, in this group who's known to want to end our state sovereignty? Yeah. And so you, almost every Secretary of State for the last, I think, 60 years has been a member. Uh, nearly every uh, CIA chief is a member of the CFR. Wow. You know, dude. I mean, you talk about the shadow government and, and the conspiracy. This is the conspiracy. I mean, because right. it's not just the council, though. Uh, you know, if you look at their members, uh, they're connected to all these other groups, whether it's the, the Trilateral Commission right. or the Bilderberg Group or the Atlantic Council or the Aspen Institute. It just goes on and on. Uh, the Rand Corp. I was reading uh, this book. Uh, it's called Higher Circles by a guy named, I think his name's uh, G. William Wimhoff, I think. Okay. But uh, he was saying that, um, that uh, in 1963, seven out of the 17 heads of Rand were Council on Foreign Relations wow. members. And what is I've never, I've heard that I'm maybe I'm just thinking of Ayn Rand, but what what is uh? So basically, they're the strategic this group that's supposed to help out with uh, strategic maneuvers and in, in planning, and they were I think they were first said to have been formed to help the uh, Air Force, but okay. uh, they went on to to be a part and help with every other uh, of the military agencies, and. Uh, they, man, they are, they have planned so many things. I read a while back, I thought it was really interesting. They actually created the game Battleship. Wow. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I, I'd read that. And um, huh. they come up with something called the Delphi Technique, uh, which I've is where they, yeah, it's where they basically, they'll take these crowds and they'll speak in front of them. Yeah. And the things they say, they make the crowds actually think, their ideas, what they want to implement is actually the crowd's ideas. So yeah, they're, uh, I'd like to look further into them and maybe do a show one day on that, but, uh, yeah, they've they've had, sorry, the Marvel or yeah, there's a, I hate to keep bringing superheroes, but Danny Rand is this, uh, he's the iron fist. It's like a lame superhero character, but his family is the Rand family, obviously. And they're like this huge, corporation or something like that so i wonder uh but just uh i bet i bet you i bet you it's based on that that's that's very interesting yeah 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 (laughs) i'm kind of skipping around here as far as the timeline goes but uh you know the in 1920 the league of nations uh, they tried to form that right um the guy that was really behind uh, Wilson, his name was Edward Mandelhouse, and okay. uh, he was a part of the council. He was a he was a part of the the Pilgrim Society, and so he he was you know in with all that that group of guys, and um, they tried to start before they finally got uh, the Federal Reserve. They had something called the Aldridge Plan. Uh, it was from a Senator Aldridge. I forget his first name, but he was a part of that group as well. And he was one of the ones that ended up going over to Jekyll Island and uh, helping form, uh, you know, or get the plans for the Federal Reserve. But, you know, the people wouldn't have, uh, the American people would not go for the League of Nations. So right. thank God, you know, we we kind of uh, pushed it off for a while. Right. But um, 
Do you think Cecil, like with all these different, it was like uh, different focuses or to like, you know, like how you said the Pilgrim Society and like, do you think like the CFR is like the bottom of the pyramid kind of like. Uh, well, um, I don't know, because if you look at their, like, I would just suggest any of the listeners, if they're kind of uh, curious about this, go on the CFR.org, uh-huh. look up their individual membership. Oh, that's a good idea. But also look up their corporate membership because their corporate membership is every company you can think of that's just wow. like, like a behemoth like Google and Exxon and Facebook. And uh, they have everybody, all the banks, uh, BlackRock and Bank of America. So they are very, very powerful. And uh, what I kind of try to get through to people, and this was hard for me to accept too is it's 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 conservatives and liberals there you know it doesn't really matter when you're that high up with the council um it's all about the globalism and really uh empowering the i i guess they're if you want to say it like this they're corporate masters i mean i don't know it's they just don't seem to care about uh politics when it gets up to that level right they just have that yeah and um, I mentioned this on a lot of podcasts, but I'm going to mention it again. Anyway, uh, one of the guys that I have researched quite a bit, he says that the elite have something called the, it's kind of a motto called uh, people as policy or personnel as policy. Okay. So it's like, you know, you don't have to have this super elaborate plan. Uh, you know, the new world order types, they don't have to have this super elaborate conspiracy because they all think alike. They were all educated at these Ivy league schools, right. they're all a part of, uh, you know, CFR and Bilderberg and all right. these different. So there's no real reason for something super secretive mm-hmm. because yeah. a lot of people say, well, how could somebody keep a secret that that big of a secret? Right. But is it even a secret to them? You know, <laughs> I mean, the council has been around for a hundred years and probably I would say 70%, 80% of the people don't know who they are. So yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. So you don't really have to be too secretive, obviously. To <laughs> right, you know? right, yeah, yeah. I don't mean to keep getting so League of League of Nations collapses. I know if you had a timeline, I was trying to. I know I keep bringing you off the timeline, so I apologize. No, no, I'm I, I'm kind of uh, because I learned a lot of these things in different uh, at different times. I probably right. don't have the timeline perfect, but. Um, <laughs> I was just looking at some of the other, um, like Winston Churchill was a Freemason and a Druid and a Pilgrim Society. Wow. And, uh, you know, he helped form the European Union with other mm. CFR members and uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs members. Yeah. That's and uh, a little bit later on, the same, a lot of those same guys and the same, of course, uh, CFR members helped form the United Nations. It was basically a continuance of the league of nations. Right. But they figured out a way to bypass Congress voting on it. So they're like, well, we can form this other thing and say it's Uh, for world peace and basically get all the things that we wanted done with the league of nations, but not even have to worry about the American people voting on it and not have to worry about Congress voting on it and stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah, you're right. They framed it like in a nonprofit or something. I'm sure. Exactly. You know, And for the greater good, just like everything they say is for the greater good. (laughs) 
I mean, you had Rockefeller donating the, the, the land in New York City for the United Nations. Right. Uh, so he was a huge part of that. And if people wonder why these, uh, these guys who are just extremely, extremely wealthy would uh, want to form these, these different institutions that have a real, they seem to be really friendly with communists, but mm. I think it was just for power. I mean, you know, I think they, they could control these communist countries. They could control the, uh, the production, the means of production. So, I don't think they really care if your system's communist or capitalist or socialist. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, they, they still hold their power. Right. Yeah. And, and they never, you know, they like, uh, I think it was the uh, elder Rockefeller, I guess it was John D. He said once famously that uh, he hated competition. And I think that is why mm -hmm. they've formed all these elite groups because it allows them to totally stifle the competition you know right. they, they all work together they have these these banker friends they can they can basically control the regulations that are set forth in government yeah. and make it to where the, the small businesses can't thrive they right. can't uh, compete you know yeah dude it's it's crazy man and really uh you know it kind of relates to uh some of the well, I was, I was mentioning the socialists there, but the Fabian right. socialists, some of them have been uh, like the Edward Mandel house uh, was a Fabian socialist, if I'm not mistaken. And he wrote a book called Philip drew while he was the assistant to, uh, to, uh, uh I'm, I'm losing my <laughs> train no, of thought. Here. All right. <laughs> while, while he was uh assistant to Woodrow Wilson, he wrote a book called uh, Philip drew administrator. And it was okay. all about, uh, Marx, and it was all about having this mm. Marxist government. So, <laughs> do you think yeah. that that's just like we were talking about power? Like, is you know they supported all these like the Bolshevik Revolution, and even now, like with Amazon, we see like this highly socialized. Like, do you think that it's to consolidate power? Like you said, like the means of production is that, or that? Do you know what I mean? why yeah. does it seem to tend that like these huge corporations? lean that way yeah i think it's it's to consolidate power it's to control you know the means of production stamp out competition and uh i think too i mean i and i don't want to get weird or anything but i think there must be some kind of spiritual side to it where they yeah. want to uh just take over everything right and they get to a, a certain level and the wealth is not enough for them right so they have to can start controlling people by the thousands and it and it seems like it's just that way for some reason mm. and of course they think that their will like like we'll look at bill gates right now uh, their their will is the best for everyone so even if some people have to be hurt for them to implement their will then they're they're hell-bent on doing it you know right yeah yeah and you know i don't know it's it's one of those things where um you know, I, uh, I've talked about this um, kind of um, war for the soul of humanity mm -hmm. uh, because I read uh, that there is a lot of people in, in Freemasonry and the Rosicrucians believe that there's this war against uh, basically, you know, two classes of people, the, the priestly class and the, uh, the maker class. Right. And so, I don't know. They, they seem to like the, the power elites seem to be a part of that maker class. 
And uh, I don't know. They, I, I feel like they think that this is their goal and that they'll leave this, this legacy behind right. and they want to form this, this world government. You know, it's, it's the one weird thing that I've noticed is you have all these elites and a lot of people think this global governance is just an economic thing, but it's also a spiritual thing because it's the same thing that Blavatsky and any uh, Besant and she, and any Besant was the second, I think she was right. the second head of the theosophical right, yeah, society after Blavatsky and also, died or whatever. Right. And also a Fabian socialist and that, which is kind of weird, but, um, and then of course, Alice mm-hmm. Bailey, uh, who has a, had a huge influence on the United Nations. And I, I'll be honest, uh, her teachings, I think, are what a lot of these elites go by because I've read several of her books now and I've read two of her husband's books. And it's it's really all this new age kind of uh, thing where we're all going to be led by these, what do they call them, like ascended masters, basically. Right. And uh, that... Uh, but but everything's going to be equal. Everyone's going to be free and equal and you know, total equality, which yeah. cannot happen. But we know that that is not right. I mean, because you can't. Some people don't want to be a part of the system, and so yeah, <laughs> you can't. Then they're not going to put up with that, you know. Yeah, you'll. Oh um, yeah. But but uh, and also even um, Manly P. Hall, who I think was a brilliant guy, but yeah, he bad. was a socialist and, uh, you know, he really wanted this, this That's really utopia. Wild. Right. So they, they say, of course, that everything's going to be great and it's going to be wonderful. You know, everyone's holding hands and everything's going to be fair, but that we see that being pushed right now with the great reset. Right. And we know that things are not going to be that way because we can see, if you look back at all the people who wanted to start the world government in the early 1900s, like some of the people we're talking about, um, they were for eugenics and right. uh, sterilization. Yeah. And uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw, um, I wish I had the quote in front of me. He basically said uh, a socialist, and he was one of the main Fabians, uh, a socialist would be required to work and if and present themselves in a certain way. And if they wouldn't do that then they perhaps could be killed in a humane way <laughs> wow so you know that i think is uh people should think about that because they're not gonna they want us dependent and and i'm sure that a lot of them mean that in, in a good way but they they're not going to put up with people who are not going to go along with what right. they want right and it's just human nature to uh like when I was a kid, there was this Warner Brothers cartoon and it was like this big cat and he would uh, he would get this little tiny cat and he would hug him and he was squeeze him all over. And he was like, yeah. I will hug you and squeeze you and call you George. And he would like be killing this cat, like just squeezing it to death. This cat yeah. was like, oh, God, help me. That's basically what the elite want to do to us. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're going to love us to death. That's their idea of love is we will obey and we will go with whatever they want us to go with. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's with Cecil Rhodes, like the nationalism of the UK. And then you compare that with uh, Klaus Schwab. I haven't read his book, but I've listened to so, you know, there's been so many people talking about the great reset, but like how race, like, do you think, cause like clearly when this started, right. It was like an English nationalist kind of movement. Right. And now it seems to be like the flip flop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's just a worldwide thing where 
I think it's just become elites of the world uh, uniting together to create this globalism because they believe, I think, that they have a spiritual motivation, uh, this humanistic spiritual motivation, that they know what's right for the world and they are going to implement this and make everything fair and create this uh, new Atlantis like Manly P. Hall mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah, it's important, yeah. But, you know, it's just... I mean, you're not going to create something like that and keep it like who would who would hold those people accountable? This this right. high grand council that, uh, uh, you know, it's is really going to be important. over the world. So, yeah, that's that's the thing that uh, is really scary to me. Um, there's this um, if anybody wants to look it up, if it's it should still be online. Um, and I, I've been meaning to go on and save it. There was an article in the 90s. Actually, oddly enough, on the Washington Post Mm. called Ruling Class Journalists. And this guy actually laid it all out on the line there. He said in the article that a lot of your top journalists were in bed with the Council on Foreign Relations. And he went over some of the top uh, government people who were in the Council on Foreign Relations. And he was very honest. I don't know how that got through the, the, you know, the filters, but that's a that's a good one to to look into. And. If I could uh, recommend a book, uh, James Perloff's Shadows of Power is a great one. And another really good book to kind of go along with that one, it's a newer one. It's called I Dare Call It Treason by Servando Gonzalez. And uh, he does a great job of kind of uh, talking about the more modern Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, in the back of the book, he lists all the important people and the important businesses who have been who've been in the council for the last decade wow. or so, and so it, it's it's a basically a, a list of who's who. And um, one of the other things that uh, I thought was cool that he did in that book, because I hear I mentioned that the the council has uh, in certain cities they have council councils within the cities that are controlled by the council on foreign relations so he he labels all of those you mean like, like a city council yes exactly yeah wow and wow. they've got uh so i won't of course i won't name them all because some countries have more than one but uh he's like he says here cfr in the u.s and there's like 10 different institutions and then canada's got their own uh cfr uh latin america's got like eight UK's got, of course, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which was the first right. one. Europe has got about 10 different ones. Asia's got two, uh, Chinese Institute of International Affairs and the Japanese Institute, wow. Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Africa has the South African Inst- Institute of International Affairs. Uh, and then, like, here's the states, uh, Alabama World Affairs Council, which I'd never heard of. Yeah. Uh, even Alaska has two. Uh, Mm. Los Angeles has like eight just in Los Angeles. (laughs) Wow. Colorado has three. Uh, You know, of course I can't go through them all, but these are councils in their biggest cities who are controlled by the CFR. And uh, one thing that I learned that um, blows my mind, but uh, in a way, I guess it wasn't that uh, surprising is that uh, Mike Pompeo is actually in the Wichita uh, city council on foreign relations, he's a board member. Mm. So you like, it's like I was saying earlier, you can't get away from it. Like um, 
let's see here. Uh, so there's been at least 10 appointees that Biden has supposedly appointed or trying to appoint right. uh, that have been, been CFR members already. And he hasn't wow. even appointed that many or tried to appoint yeah. that many. Right. Um, and you look at the, the DNC, the, the, you know, you look at the, uh, people who were running for the DNC as a president and you had, uh, of course, Biden was a former member at one time. Hmm. Um, but he, I don't think he could hack it. <laughs> He's too dumb. Cause yeah, I have to say absolutely. there's a lot, it's, there's a lot of intellectuals in there. All right. Um, Bloomberg, of course, is a CFR member, trilateral commission member, Bilderberg member. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard was a CFR member. Hmm. Uh, Klobuchar was a CFR member. Uh, Mayor Pete, the butt guy, he was a, a Rhodes Scholar. And that's another way. Uh, we'll, we'll oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Cory Cory Booker was a Rhodes Scholar, of course. Bill wow. Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. I didn't know uh, Cory Booker was as well. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Maddow is a Rhodes Scholar. Do you want to explain what the, I mean, we already talked about Cecil Rhodes, but the, what that, for people that don't know. Yeah, forgive me. I should have mentioned that earlier, but yeah, uh, fine. so uh, yeah, that came out of uh, Cecil Rhodes' wills where he wanted to appoint these uh, people from Ivy League colleges to be a part of his institutions. So uh, that was one of the first ones was the Rhodes Scholarship. And uh, of course, now they admit uh, women as well. But mm-hmm. um, I'm not calling Rachel Maddow a woman by any means. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they do admit women now. So, yeah, that's and if you look, there has been a lot of famous people who've had really right. powerful positions who were Rhodes Scholars. So that's just a part of that whole uh, Cecil Rhodes will. It's one of the roundtable groups. And, uh, crazy. I was looking at uh, see my notes here. Uh, there was a guy, he was a, a member of the CFR, uh, Robert Kraft, uh, in the 60s. And he had a quote where he said that uh, the CFR bridges the gap between Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one that way to when, say it, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. And he said uh, that uh, when there was a new administration that comes in, it provides for a smooth transition, you know, <laughs> which which is basically goes directly back to uh, Carol Quigley, who was uh, also a CFR member. And he wrote the book Tragedy and Hope. Many people have heard of that. Yeah. Uh, and it was basically the the book on this whole Rhodes Roundtable, this whole Rhodes plan. It's like a like an 800, 900 page book. Wow. Because he got to do their biography, basically. Okay. Um, but um, he had a quote in there that uh, basically said the same thing. It said, basically, their idea was to have two parties, but not have any difference in the parties, except for a mm. few different things That's that would fool the American people. So you basically get, with every different administration, you get the same old type of people in Right. Right. So it won't, it doesn't even matter who you vote for basically is what he was right. saying. I think, so I think that's also that book that you like brought up a good point. Like uh, all these, they, all these guys, they like write their plan in the book because they don't expect any, like the masses will never read it. Wouldn't you say? Oh, exactly. Yeah. They like definitely. always tell what they're going to do, but no one reads the book. So it like. Right. Exactly. It's all out there. A lot of this stuff isn't a conspiracy whatsoever. I mean, everything I've talked about today can be corroborated by multiple books and authors and in notes from these books and stuff right. like that. And uh, like the if you look up um, 
foreign affairs. I don't know if it's .com or .org. That's uh, the Council on Foreign Relations magazine, and they started that right off the bat. And that's basically the magazine for the elites. They say that the magazine isn't written for regular people. It's written by elites for the elites. So they'll kind of know what each other, what the plan is ahead, basically. Wow. Um, Yeah. I was looking at uh, here in uh, 2008 in the primaries. Okay. Look, this, all these people were CFR members. You had uh, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, Chris Dodd, and Bill Richardson on the Democrat side. Mm -hmm. Then you had Mitt Romney, Rudy Giuliani, who I was kind of surprised was a CFR member, John McCain, Newt Gingrich, and Fred Thompson. They were all CFR members. And then, you know, as bad as I hate to admit it, even Trump had CFR members in his cabinet. Uh, You know, even uh, I think InfoWars broke this uh, before the election, but Trump had met with Richard Haas, who was the uh, head of the CFR. And then uh, right after he was elected, he met with Henry Kissinger. Yeah. And uh, he appointed uh, John Bolton, who was a CFR guy. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, the judge, was CFR. Uh, one of the worst ones I thought was uh, Elliot Abrams was the guy that was appointed to head up the Venezuelan uh, coup, I okay. guess you'd say. Yeah, right. And he was a Council on Foreign Relations member. Um, Do you and think, I'm like, oh, sorry, I was going to ask. Go no, you're, you're totally fine. Uh, I'll just finish these up real quick. Yeah. There's just a couple more. Oh, uh, yeah. KT, KT McFarland was a Council on Foreign Relations member. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci was a Council on Foreign mm-hmm. Relations member. General McMaster was Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, also I mentioned uh, Mike Pompeo's in the Wichita right. Committee on Foreign Relations. Do you think like, do they have meet like, meetings or do you know and because i you hear all like bilderberg and trilateral like do you think cfr is also like a recruiting ground or do they have like meetings for these groups you know what i mean yeah absolutely so they um one thing they do uh is if you notice uh well if you look back through the people that they've chosen and who've been part of their uh membership Mm-hmm. it's kind of like a who's who of who's been in presidential administrations. I'm not exactly sure how they work their meetings, but um, they do have, like, if you're a member, you pay a fee and uh, okay. you get all their emails and all the right. access to foreign affairs magazine. And so I'm sure they probably do. They probably do conference online conferences right. and stuff like that. Right. Uh, but I'm sure there are meetings. You probably just have to be a member to know exactly how that works out. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. What, what they do is um, they'll take these focus groups of like 20 to 30 different elites and they'll uh, work up this paper, you know, like a 30, 40, even 100 page paper, and they'll present it to the federal government. Mm-hmm. And of course, they've got their buddies who are also in the council, in, in the governments, in the administrations. And basically, a lot of times those plans become laws. They become policy and that's how it's worked for years. Ever since the late thirties is really, uh, they've had a lot of power in government unelected, you know, of course they're unelected. That's so Um, important, right? Right. And and, and these, these, these focus group or these groups that they form and come up with these policies, you know, America and the rest of the world, because they're in all these other countries uh, have no say whatsoever. And then they are presented Without our knowledge, we don't know what's in those policies. And then they end up becoming law, you know? Wow, dude. It's that you're so, that's, I think, so important. Like, we don't elect these people at all. And they're, 
you know, whether it's like pressuring because you listen to like, they probably have respect for the people higher up and they can just pass, utilize you wherever they can. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dick Cheney was, uh, I know there's a, I, I played the clip on one of my shows, but he was a director of the Council on Foreign Relations. Wow. Dude. While he was uh, running for vice president. No way. And uh, if, if that wasn't a conflict of interest, I don't know what was. Oh, my uh, God. That's and wild. Course, uh, yeah. And um, Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, the one that passed a couple of years ago, right. he was he's like a what does it say here? He's director emeritus, meaning lifetime director, even though he's dead. He's their <sighs> honorary. I think probably because he, he'd given them so much money over the right. years. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's just, and then how do you think like the other ones relate like trilateral? I know that this was more about the CFR, yeah. but like trilateral, right. That was started by rock. Wasn't that Rockefeller too? Right. Yeah. He was behind that for sure. His money. And, um, and that's directly related to, to the CFR, kind of like a sister organization. Okay. And what that was, uh, they around the, I guess around the time of the Carter administration, actually right before they had formed that and they were, because they were like, well, maybe we can form, uh, you know, their, their goal was, you know, how they formed the, U the EU, the European right. Union, was maybe we can eventually talk America into joining maybe Mexico and Canada and, okay. and forming this North American Union okay. uh, or, or the Trilateral Commission. I think that even brings in Asia. So they wanted to form a certain uh, union with okay. different countries. That way, some of these countries would already be formed in their own unions. And then they could more easily put together a world government. Okay. And they, yeah, because I mean, you know, they, they've thought of everything, man. And it goes right along with the UN. A lot of the people who are council and foreign relations members are also U United Nations members mm -hmm. or affiliated with United Nations members. Uh, a lot of uh, deans of colleges, a lot of deans of colleges are council and foreign relations members wow. in, the, in, the, in the big, in the bigger colleges. Right. Uh, uh that's let's, wild let's see here um i was trying to think of some of the media figures that are okay check this out walter cronkite uh i don't know if he was a, a cfr guy but he was like back it was before, even before my time right. uh they call him the most trusted man in america yeah. or something yeah. like that yeah he was he was a world federalist which is uh, you know they're, they're another group that wants world governance um, you're going to break any boomer. My dad, he listens. He's going to be heartbroken <laughs> when he hears that. Yeah. You can actually, I think you can still go on YouTube and uh, see him taking the Norman Cousins award at the world federalist organization. And none other than Hillary Clinton is the one that presents him the award. No way. So yeah, <laughs> but uh, we've got uh, George Stephanopoulos, Andrea mm -hmm. Mitchell, Charlie Rose, Aaron Burnett, uh, Jake Tapper, of course, of course, Monica Crowley, Andrea Mitchell, uh, Trish Reagan from Fox, uh, Maria Bartiromo, yeah, from Fox yeah. Business, right. uh, Joe Scarborough, uh, Fareed Zakaria <laughs> is actually on the board of the CFR, uh, Judy Woodruff, Brian Williams, wow. Barbara Walters, uh, of course, Richard Haas has been on real time with Bill Maher numerous times. Uh, and there's just tons of heads of corporate uh, NGOs, like a lot Jesus. of those NGOs that are 
uh, affiliated with the United Nations. A lot of those green energy environmental mm. groups are their heads are Council on Foreign Relations members. So mm. they basically got academia, military, uh, the media, uh, some Hollywood people as well. Um, it's just unbelievable how many people have been a part of that. And and they and yet they've still been able to uh, kind of keep it yeah, a secret. Yeah, the radar, right. I think that um, a lot of times when I mention or when somebody else mentions the Council on Foreign Relations, I think like average people, they just assume that it's some kind of uh, uh, office or, or agency within the government. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of sounds like a government agency because I think right. they have, you know, we have uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee and stuff like that. So they just think it's something like that. They don't realize that it, it has nothing to do as far as. Uh, with tax, it's not paid for by tax money. Council on Foreign Relations is totally separate. It's not a government agency. Uh, it makes its money by the members paying their dues. Hmm. And uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, of course, they sell subscriptions uh, from Foreign Affairs and they have books that a lot of their guys will put books out and those books make money. And so they bring a little bit of money back there. But like I said, man, it's it's a who's who of these multinational corporations and uh, CEOs of different uh, businesses, and uh, it's top Democrats and Republicans. It's right. it's just it's just a, it's basically, you know, we've been hearing about this conspiracy that people make fun of for years and years, and it's right there, right. and it's all these people who are very powerful. And even if they're not a part of the federal government anymore, they've got all those connections from where they were in administrations. Yeah. And they're directly related to these huge businesses. And so it's, it's basically who controls what happens in our government and the world economic forum is just another type of council on foreign relations. I haven't looked to Mm. see if Klaus Schwab is a a member of the council, but uh, he may not be since he's, you know, I think from Germany or right. Switzerland or wherever, yeah. uh, but I'm sure he is a member of one of their offshoots. Yeah. And uh, some people might, uh, even say that maybe he's higher up than uh, some of these other people. Maybe he's like mm-hmm. kind of the, uh, the Darth Vader. <laughs> or the. <laughs> he sounds like one dude. Looks like. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you can imagine like being in that group and either like a business or like a politician and try to do anything because I was like in a fraternity, I don't know, but, uh, and like you go to other colleges and that you could like, you had a connection with these people because they were in your, you know, your, your fraternity, but I'm sure that's how this, is. it's like, you know, they, even if they're a Republican or a Democrat, they will help them because they're still, they're both a part of this elite or exclusive club. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes right back to, um, you know, fraternity, uh, college, that's what they called the uh, mystery schools back in the day, like the, the Freemasons and the other mystery schools uh, originally. So, uh, and I think a lot of these guys, I suspect a lot of these guys are in other, uh, yeah. like the Skull and Bones. There's been a lot of Skull and Bones members uh, that were Council on Foreign Relations members. Right. And, and Rhodes himself said, you know, way back in the day that he wanted to kind of uh, take part of what the the Freemasons did and part of what the Jesuits Jesuits did and, and kind of form these secret societies. Right. And was he a Freemason or no? Uh, yes, he was. Um, mm. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but there is uh, you can easily look it up because they keep their records. 
because they love to brag about famous people being part of the you know the fraternity and so you can you can find what uh lodge he belonged to and it, it was most of the 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 first uh, society of the elect the original group okay. of uh, his his people almost all those guys were freemasons from that lodge okay interestingly enough so yeah yeah wow dude. yeah yeah and it's it's uh you know if like I said, uh, I mentioned a couple of books there, but if anybody wants to hit me up, there's quite a few books and a lot of stuff you can find on archive.org for free. If you don't want to, you know, if you don't have a, enough cash to fork over the books or you just yeah. want to like, you know, just look through them or whatever. I've got uh, like, I know they make a bunch of these apps and uh, I had one when I had Android and I can't remember the name of it, but I have Speechify now and you can just drop a PDF or another form Mm. of uh, a book ebook into it and it'll read it to you wow uh, which is pretty cool yeah uh, it's, and there's a bunch of apps out there if people you know because a lot of people don't have time to read or they right. commute a long way so you can download free books on uh, yeah. archive.org throw them into that app and they'll read them to you huh. so that is very good dude is yeah it's a, anything else about the see it like uh should like is um like is Elon Musk also? That's what I was wondering. Is Elon Musk in the CFR or no? Did you see Ooh, that? that? That's a great question. Uh, I uh, should know that. Look it up. We'll look it up. Yeah. Yeah. I'll post right. It. Right. But any other big things about? I mean, the CFR or I guess uh, any tips about you know with that knowledge? Do you know what I mean? Like maybe I don't know. I don't know. Well, um, I just think that if people would take the time to look it up, you know, look up this history and uh, just think about it. If almost all of your CIA directors were council and foreign relations members, mm. almost all your secretaries of state, tons of people from the state department, uh, all these heads of businesses, all these, you know, the people we mentioned, the, the, the top military men, right. the top media figures, and I just mentioned a few. There's a lot more than that. You're right. There's tons. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think it started out at like a couple hundred. And now it's up to like, I believe the last count was either six or 7,000 people in it. And that is still considered uh, to be, these are six or 7,000 elites from the top of their fields. And so they've got every angle covered. They own the media so they can control what people think. They own the military industrial complex. Uh, they get into every presidential administration and affect policies. You know, that's, uh, they, they basically control everything that's going on. And until people, I, I made a tweet yesterday. I said that people, something like uh, people know everything about the white house, but nothing about the, uh, the Chatham house and the, uh, Oh, now I'm forgetting the name of the, <laughs> I can see where you're going with it though. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the place that the council meets at, the Harold Pratt House, excuse okay. me. Okay. And there's something to do. I'm going to look that up on these days. There's something to do. There's something up with these houses. Like, I don't know what it is, uh. but I'm starting to notice that a lot of these groups have a house, a certain house that they meet at. And it's not Ooh. just those two groups. So there's something going on there. Oh, that's but, good. That's good. But yeah, like, and uh, also I, I did uh, three shows on the council just different things. If anybody wants to check those out, uh, it's oddcast 23, 25, 
and 29. Awesome. Um, and there's just different things about the council. Because, uh, you know, there's so much history there, right. 100 years of history. Right. That, uh, like, uh, one of the really interesting things is their part in all these different big events, like uh, we mentioned the, the formation of the EU and the United Nations, but stuff like the Gulf of Tonkin and the Vietnam War and how uh, they, they basically pushed us into, they push us into these wars, even though they say they are for peace. That's mm-hmm. something that people need to think about too. They are behind a lot of these wars, but they say they're for peace, for world peace, and we got to form this world government to end these wars. So, huh. and they this is what this this is what I've come to believe. They have pushed all these wars since the first you know world war, yeah, because they want to create enough destabilization and misery, worldwide misery, that one day eventually people will agree to this global governance. And so I think that uh, that's why they've pushed all this stuff, uh, pushed all this huh. order out of chaos, like the Freemasons. Say. Right. Right. Uh, they've tried to create their own order. And uh, if they have to do, you know, if they have to create a situation so they can be the ones to create the so-called fix um, problem reaction solution, then right. I think that's exactly the way, they handle everything. That's been their, their, uh, their MO. Their mo- yeah. MO. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. I, I mean, I, that was a really awesome, uh, episode. I don't think many people, I, I always see you're like the big tweeter about who CFR members are. And I knew that there was like a significance to that, but this really helped me understand how significant that is, you know? Yeah. And, um, I appreciate that, man. I, I'm not the best speaker, but I get ex- excited about these things. And to, <laughs> oh, dude, um, great. But uh, yeah, there's so much information there. But uh, yeah, if people don't ever take the time to really understand that these groups uh, that are all c- interconnected control everything, and they all because because the media, which they own, basically right. keep us uh, keep our attention diverted to say President Trump right. and in Pelosi or Schumer or, or say Lindsey Graham and whoever else. Right. But they don't ever tell us, even like I, I listen to Rush Limbaugh for 20 years. He never talks about the council on foreign relations. Wow. Laura Ingram's not going to talk about that. I, I doubt that even Tucker would talk about the council on right. foreign relations yet. They have probably more say so in a lot of ways than people who are actually elected. Mm. So yeah, I think people should just keep that in mind, and uh, and hopefully people will take it on their own to investigate what we talked about. Yeah, dude. Well, where can everyone find you, man? I think, like I said, you've been on the show now more than uh, any other guest. Well, I'm honored, man. Thank you uh, once again. I really <laughs> no, appreciate thank it. Thank you for doing it, dude. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, find me at alternate. That's alternatecurrentradio.com. My podcast is on there. Uh, you can find me probably the easiest place to talk with me is uh, underscore the odd man out on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I don't know, man, something about Instagram. Uh, people like me on there. So if really? you're on that's there, awesome, dude. Yeah. I, I didn't think that it would be a good platform for me. And that's yeah. uh, where I've really made a lot of uh, how many followers friends. you have on there. Uh, I think almost 1800. So, wow, that's awesome, dude. 
Yeah, people are really hungry. Uh, I've noticed one thing. People are hungry on Instagram for information. Mm -hmm. Like like I was on Facebook forever. Nobody gives a damn. All those old people, they're not. And I'm I'm including myself. I'm not no spring chicken. You're not that old, odd man. But but they know everything, so they they don't want to talk about anything. Funny dude. But you get on Instagram, and people were like asking me questions and, and talking. Tell me more about this, you know. So that's how I started a podcast. Uh, one of my uh, friends on there kept ushering me to start a podcast, and I finally dude, did. You do a great <laughs> job, man. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, dude. I'll put you know your links in, and I thought that was a great episode, dude. So I'll sign it off there. All right, man. Thank you so All much. All right, man. Oh, man. Take care. Bye. All right, man. Bye. Well, there it is, guys. That was my talk with Jack from Conspiracy Theory or Just a Coincidence. I hope that you got something out of that. I think that it provided enough information for anyone to kind of realize the origins of this push for globalism. It's no conspiracy at all. It's all been documented many times over by great researchers. It's just not talked about in the mainstream or pop culture. And so and so they can easily just count it off as a conspiracy theory, a silly conspiracy theory, like they do so many things. And no wonder they do that because so many of their media establishments are owned by people who are a part of this whole cabal, this whole uh, cadre of institutions and elitists. So I hope that you'll take that information provided in this podcast and do your own research. And please, please share this podcast with other people. I hope that other people will learn from it as well. And kind of realize why we are where we are today. Now, I wanted to thank Jack once again and ask you to please listen to his show, Conspiracy Theory or Just a Coincidence. Again, I've been on there three different times now, and I suggest you check out those episodes as well as all of his others. Now, I wanted to kind of expand on what we talked about a little bit by going back to the League of Nations and the forming of that. And I'm going to be reading from a book by an author named Nicholas Hager. And the book is called The Syndicate, The Story of the Coming World Government. And he documents in here a little bit about the League of Nations. And I learned some things that I didn't know before. And I hope that you'll get something out of this. He starts off in 1917 under the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Administration. He says, the armistice that ended the First World War had been based on Woodrow Wilson's 14-point proposals for a post-war peace settlement, and this was included in the Treaty of Versailles. The clauses of that treaty were worded out at an International Grand Orient Masonic Congress held at their headquarters in Rue Cadet, Paris in 1917. They had the idea for the League of Nations and worked out the clauses of that constitution. The minutes for the preliminary planning meeting in January 1917 speak of elaborating the constitution of the League of Nations. Rothschild's representative, Colonel Edward Mandel House, a 33rd degree Grand Lodge Mason, was in charge. President Wilson took the idea from Colonel House and represented it to the U.S. at the peace conference. Bernard Baruch, who had made $200 million for himself while head of the War Industries Board, 
was also in the American delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. The English delegation included Sir Philip Sassoon, a direct descendant of Mayor Amstel Rothschild, and the French delegation included George Mandel, who was also known as Jeroboam Rothschild. The stated aim of the League was to solve international disputes and reduce arms, but the Grand Orient wanted the Treaty of Versailles between the Allies and Germany, and to transfer the wealth of the fallen monarchies to the Grand Orient nations in the form of war reparations. War reparations would cripple Germany, and the Treaty of Versailles included a 20-year truce which split up Europe. As Lloyd George pointed out, we have written a document that guarantees war in 20 years. When you place a condition on a people, Germany, that it cannot possibly keep, you force it to either breach the agreement or go to war. Lloyd George was prescient almost to the year. The U.S. Senate, however, then rejected the League, and in 1921, and that was the official year when the CFR was put together, a separate peace treaty with Germany and Austria. Maybe for the oil and money interests, peace was not such a good idea. Maybe a public organization like this, in the media spotlight, wasn't what they really wanted and needed. All right, stick with me, guys. We're about to get into the history of the formation of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which you heard me talk to Jack about. All right. The Royal Institute of International Affairs, or RIIA, is nothing but the Milner Group writ large. That's Carol Quigley from the Anglo-American Establishment. Remember, Carol Quigley was the guy who also wrote Tragedy and Hope, and that was basically the biography of the Cecil Rhodes-formed world government. And Milner, Lord Milner, was the guy that uh, Cecil left his fortunes to to create these different roundtable groups and the Pilgrim Society, the Society of the Elect, and all that. When the news of rejection by the U.S. of the League of Nations reached Colonel House in Paris, where he was constructing the Versailles Treaty, pro-globalist Americans and their counterparts, the pro-globalist British, established in principle two organizations that would fulfill the plans of the round table. The first of these two organizations to be set up was the British one. In 1919, Lionel Curtis, secretary to Lord Milner, established the front system for the round table known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or the RIIA, which was also known as the Chatham House Study Group as its headquarters until 1961 were in Chatham House in the Ormond Yard, which gave its name to the Chatham House rules. We talked about that with uh, Jack. I thought they still had their meetings at the Chatham House, but uh, according to this, that is not true. Its first paid official was the world government federalist historian Arnold Toynbee, who later became its director. Its initial endowment was £2,000 from Thomas Lamont of J.P. Morgan. And it has since received many millions of dollars from the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Corporations. The American version of the Institute of International Affairs, the IIA, formed in July 1919 by Colonel House, following a year of meetings in New York. House was an admirer 
of Karl Marx and had written a novel called Philip Drew Administrator about establishing socialism as dreamt of by Karl Marx and about the creation of a one-world totalitarian government with a central bank and income tax. House implemented the philosophy of the book during his time as Wilson's advisor. You go back to Edward Mandelhaus being a 33rd degree Mason. In May 1919, Baron Edmund de Rothschild hosted a dinner in Paris for Colonel House's IIA, which was supported by a number of J.P. Morgan associates and the Round Table, Milner, Curtis, and others. It was decided that the two organizations should remain separate. In 1922, the RIIA apparently asked Major John Rawlings Reese to set up the largest brainwashing and psychological warfare facility in the world, known as the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, part of the Sussex University. Since then, the U.S. government has given contracts worth billions of dollars to Tavistock. This goes right back to MK Ultra, and I would just ask people to go back and uh, check out my two episodes on the Tavistock Institute, where we went over a lot of that history. Now, the British RIIA's original aims were to extend the British Empire and to eventually put the Brits in charge of a world government. Its leaders in London were Lionel Curtis, secretary to Milner in South Africa and the founder of the Quarterly Roundtable in 1910, and Lord Lothian, a relative of the current British Conservative Party. Shadow Foreign Secretary Michael Ancram, whose father inherited the title from a cousin, John Maynard Keynes, and Alfred Zimmern, an Oxford professor and author of The League of Nations and the Rule of Law, who introduced his pupil Arnold Toynbee, the celebrated historian. Meetings began in July 1920, and Toynbee wrote the first annual international survey in 1924. In a speech given in Copenhagen in 1931, Toynbee declared, and you've heard me say this on the show before, but listen. We are at present working with all our might to wrest this mysterious force called sovereignty out of the clutches of the local national states of our world. And all of the time, we are denying with our lips what we are doing with our hands. John D. Rockefeller made a contribution of 8,000 pounds in 1932 and it was known to Toynbee. On the American CFR side, the leaders were Woodrow Wilson, Colonel House, Christian Herter, Tasker Blisk, acting as Chief of Staff to U.S. troops during the First War, and U.S. Delegate to the Paris Peace Conference, and John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles. The propagandist Walter Littman, who was also a very influential member, as were Robert Schumann and Paul Warburg of Federal Reserve fame. The link between Chatham House and the CFR was strong because of the friendship between Dulles and Toynbee. Trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation regularly exchanged visits. The Rockefellers partly funded Toynbee through Dulles. When Toynbee went to the U.S., Dulles arranged speaking engagements for him through the CFR. Both men believed that the nation-state should die, although they had differing political views. Dulles was a Republican, 
who saw the end of Europe's nation-states as guaranteeing peace, while Toynbee was virtually a Marxist and opposed to a nation-state. Toynbee was the central figure for, at Chatham House for 1925 until retired in 1955. He was director of studies there as well as being professor at the London School of Economics, which had been founded by the Fabians in 1895, and he was central to the campaign for world federation. His 12 volumes of study of history brought him international fame, and he exercised the influence this gave him by arguing that the nation-states should be destroyed and replaced by large blocks, which one day would lead to world governance. He criticized Curtis's beliefs in empire federation with sovereign states as a monomania and ran a series of international study conferences that promoted internationalism. He argued that if Europe lost influence to China or South Africa, the new international society would be an outgrowth of Western civilization from European roots, or the internationalist Clement Attlee, leader of the British Labour Party, told the party's conference in 1934 in words that echoed Toynbee's theme, We are deliberately putting loyalty to a world order above loyalty to our own country. Toynbee's friends were pioneers of the European Union, such as the Bolsheviks, R.H. Tawney, and William Temple, later Archbishop of Canterbury, who supported a federal and regional world structure and a united Europe that subsumed 25 sovereign states. This view was supported by Visser T. Hooft, ecumenist and General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, who in the spring of 1945 was given $1 million by Rockefeller Jr. to promote ecumenism. Now, Dulles sent American churchmen to visit Toynbee. In due course, the creation of the Benelieu, the Union of Belgium, the Netherlands, and the Luxembourg. Dulles sent American churchmen to visit Toynbee. In due course, the creation of the Benelieu, the Union of Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, took place as a result of the planning by the Federal Union in London, Arnold Toynbee and John Foster Dulles. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, I know it's a lot of reading, but uh, I think it's really good to understand this because, you know, I just kind of remember a lot of this stuff off the top of my head when I was talking to Jack, and I think it's good to get someone's, you know, someone who's written all this out has had a lot of time to think about it and put it out in a way that anyone can understand. And they're putting details in there that I forget to add. Now, Haggard has a short section on the Council on Foreign Relations. He starts off with a quote from a Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter, and it says, The real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power from behind the scenes. I think I've read that on here a couple of times, but he says a separate version of the RIIA in the USA was called the Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR. It was a front for the Rothschild-affiliated J.P. Morgan and Company, who controlled a small roundtable group. It was incorporated on July 21, 1921, out of the IIA. And we'll go back to this being now 2021, and how they will be celebrating 
a century of the Council on Foreign Relations, but the Rhodes Roundtables are even older than that, as we have explained. So again, I'll read. It was a front group for the Rothschilds-affiliated J.P. Morgan and Company, who controlled a small roundtable group, and it was incorporated on July 21st, 1921, out of the IIA which supported a League of Nations and out of the round table, which wanted to weaken the League to strengthen Germany and isolate England from Europe so as to establish an Anglo-American Atlantic power of England, the British Dominions, and the United States. The CFR also included participants of the Paris Peace Talks. It was decided that now that America was growing in confidence it had intervened in Europe to win victory in the First World War. The American Roundtable would in future be the American entity based on the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton University and not connected with the British Roundtable based at All Souls College in Oxford. That's interesting. I've not read that before. The ubiquitous Colonel House, who was Wilson's administrator and advisor, wrote the CFR's charter, and it was financed by Paul Warburg, Jacob Schiff, Avril Harriman, Vanderlip, Arouk, Aldridge, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, Kahn, Wigan, and Lehman. Well, that's a who's who of the 20th century there in business and banking. Its 150 members had mostly worked on the Versailles Treaty, and many were linked to J.P. Morgan. The CFR's posture was to study international relations, but in fact, its members were to infiltrate the American government and influence its agenda. The CFR members, the financiers of the syndicate, are known as insiders, the establishment, or the invisible government. In 1947, they were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, fresh from its involvement with Stalin and Bolivia, where Standard Oil in New Jersey had just located its oil fields, and later by the Carnegie and Ford Foundations and J.P. Morgan. In 1929, the CFR's headquarters were moved to 58 East 68th Street in New York, where they still are. The building was funded by the Rockefellers and has been called the Foreign Office of the Rockefeller Empire. Beside it stand two other emblems of the Rockefeller Soviet axis, the building of the Soviet delegation to the UN and the Rockefellers Institute of Public Administration, which controlled the city and state governments. By 1936, the CFR had 250 members. Almost every key position in every administration from Roosevelt to the present time has been held by a CFR member. And since 1945, practically every presidential candidate has been a CFR member. Today, there are some 3,000 members. Now, this book was several years ago, and it's now up to almost 7,000 members. Now, you guys know my philosophy of why they don't talk about the Council on Foreign Relations in the news and in the media and even talk radio on the right they don't want you to find out how your government really works. So instead, the public is on a steady diet of diversion, distraction, and divide and conquer tactics. 
So they want to keep us all upset about the latest political outrage, whether it's something Pelosi says or Schumer says or Trump says or Rand Paul says or Lindsey Graham says, those type of things. They want to keep you and your mind focused towards those things and not behind the scenes where the really, really important stuff is going on. And I believe even now as they're talking about impeaching Trump, that that's more of a tactic to keep your mind off of really realizing that the uh, the Great Reset is is happening no matter what happens with Trump. It's on the way, but they don't want you focused on, again, what's going on in the background. They want you and your attention and your emotions focused towards the outrage of them trying to uh, impeach Trump when it means nothing because he's out in a few days anyway. Now, consulting another book called Lucifer's Children, The Kingdomless Kings of the New World Order by Milan Martin. He has some interesting information along the same lines of what we've been talking about as far as those earlier days of the CFR. And we kind of get into a little bit more about their role with Russia. He says, during the crucial years following World War I, Several American businessmen established economic and political ties with Russia that allowed it to eventually become somewhat of an industrial nation. Such men as Armand Hammer, Cyrus Eaton, Donald Kendall, Averill Harriman, and David Rockefeller all worked closely with the American State Department and the CFR-controlled military-industrial complex to supply Stalin with the most modern technology available at the time. Lenin often referred to these American capitalists as useful idiots and also as deaf-mute blind men. The following is a quote in which Lenin uses the latter term. The capitalists of the world and their governments, in pursuit of a conquest of the Soviet market, will close their eyes to the indicated higher reality and thus will turn into deaf-mute blind men. They will extend credits, which will strengthen for us the Communist Party in their countries and giving us the materials and network and technology we lack. They will restore our military, industry, indispensable for our future, victorious attacks on our suppliers. In other words, they will labor for the preparation for their own suicide. That's a quote from The Best Enemy Money Can Buy by Anthony C. Sutton. He wrote two books on how basically the taxpayers had been funding communism for a very long time and not really even knowing it. He mentions the Dawes Plan in here, which you may have heard of. The Dawes Plan, mentioned earlier, was another one of the tools used by the international bankers to rebuild Germany's military capabilities. The Dawes Plan allowed for $8 million in loans to go towards the reconstruction, which allowed Germany to rebuild her industrial system and to pay their war debts to the Masonic conspirators. The Dawes loans were supposedly made only to help generate finances, which would pay Germany's reparations debts, but became instead the basis upon which Hitler's military-industrial complex was constructed. Now, that gets into how Hitler was armed also by tax money in a certain way. So we won't get into that right now. Now, a few pages over, he mentions the Great Depression and the CFR role in the Great Depression. So let's look at this, okay? 
With America in the grips of the Great Depression, the globalists decided that the time had come to try once again to trick the American public into joining a global government. To accomplish their goal, the conspirators would once again have to place one of their agents in the White House, just as they had President Wilson earlier. The only problem with this was with following World War I, enough Americans had learned to recognize the Hegelian dialectic process, so their plans had to be shelved for nearly two decades, as Americans had voted most of their conspiratorial agents out of office. Like President Wilson, their next presidential candidate would again have to be able to bill himself as the man of the little people, while in reality being a servant of Wall Street. Let me take this time real quick to tell you that is the way they run things. You know, they picked Carter. He was supposed to be this everyday man, this peanut farmer, right? Um, but look, look at his administration filled with trilateral commission members and CFR members. And of course, uh, look at Brzezinski, who served under him and was the one who started funding the Mujahideen and really started Al-Qaeda. And that eventually led to this war on terror. And, you know, Brzezinski kind of even admitted that they had that plan for a long time. Then, of course, they picked Reagan, supposed to be another kind of everyday man. Uh, who appealed to the regular people, right? Well, then, uh, you know, you get to Bill Clinton, who they tried to do the exact same thing with him. Uh, they tried with uh, John Edwards, and when Kerry ran, of course, Kerry was kind of the uh, elitist. I mean, people kind of realized he was an elitist and part of the establishment. Of course, they still supported him. But they needed a guy who could pretend to be your everyday man, even though, of course, he wasn't. And that was John Edwards, Mr. Used Car Salesman. But uh, you see what happened with him. Uh, his true colors were shown. And that's what they try to do is pick these everyday guys. Of course, Trump wasn't you know, an everyday guy as far as the way he lived his life. But they did have someone to appeal to the everyday people. And you guys know my philosophy on it. I've wondered oftentimes that possibly the elite could have put him in place to get people to kind of turn their backs on things like smaller government, smaller debt, uh, infringements on the Second Amendment. You know, he was no conservative by any means. And even with their assault on Christianity, you know, a lot of Christians have clung to Trump like he's like some kind of false idol and they feel like. He is their savior. But with the people he decided to surround himself with, the Christian speakers and ministers, these people were clowns. And real Christians think that those people are clowns and have made fun of them and have talked about how they are blasphemous and turncoats and just jokes anyway. So, you know, I never saw anything credible from him as far as that goes either. And I feel like possibly the people could have been tricked. You have to think about having that perfect enemy slash perfect hero. Of course, he's a hero to one side and a sworn enemy to the others. So one side spent their entire time defending him while the other side spent their entire time trying to defeat him. And both sides never paid attention to what was really going on behind the scenes. And now I'm talking about the regular people. 
Of course, the elites know exactly what's going on. But regardless, uh, if Trump was this half-hearted hero or not, the elites have played him and his time in office to their advantage. And you see the Great Reset and this globalism taking place no matter what. So there's just something to think about there because their technique in the past obviously has been many times to try and get a figurehead who would be relatable to the everyday people. And the power vacuum was in the Republican side anyway, so there was no need for something like that on the Democrat side. These are things to think about outside of what you're going to get from mainstream political talking heads, and of course the news. So that was long-winded, but let's finish up what Milan Martin was saying about the CFR's role in the Great Depression and Franklin D. Roosevelt. He says, the man they chose to represent the common man was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and was on the board of directors of at least a dozen of the CFR's major corporations. This money baron was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, with a straight face, promised the American public that he would stand up to the Wall Street and the large monopoly corporations. With the election of President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1932, peculiar year, right? Wall Street CFR conspirators once again had an agent in the White House who would cooperate with them in creating a one-world political tool, this time to be called the United Nations. As stated earlier, once again, world war would be needed to prepare the people for the surrender of their freedoms. Thus, steps were immediately taken to assure the conspirators complete control over the presidency by controlling the candidates of both parties. The virtually unknown Wendell Wilkie, a former Democrat, mm, that sounds like uh, Mitt Romney, right? A former Democrat who had almost no previous political experience, well, it sounds a little bit like Trump too, was steamrolled into prominence and given the Republican presidential nomination. Conservative Republican Congressman Usher Burdick protested on the floor of the House a few months before November 1940 elections. He said, We Republicans in the West want to know if Wall Street and the international bankers control our party and can select our candidate. There is nothing to the Wilkie boom for president except the artificial public opinion being created by newspapers, magazines, and the radio. The reason behind all of this money, money is being spent by someone and lots of it. After Wilkie's planned defeat, he was sent on an all-around-the-world fact-finding tour by Roosevelt in order to drum up support and propaganda for World War II. Upon his return, Wilkie presented his findings in the form of a book entitled One World, in which he denounced American isolationism, and in 1940, a Gallup poll, 83% of Americans were against entering World War II. If America was to be lured into war, its emotions would have to be appealed to instead of its intellect. The CFR conspirators knew this well and had been planning ahead by appointing J.P. Morgan's nephew, Joseph Grew, as an ambassador to Japan. Grew rapidly earned himself the title of Friend of Japan and was an invaluable assistant to aiding the armaments buildup of Japan's military establishment. That was from a book called 
Rockefeller Internationalist by Emmanuel Josephson. Obviously, we could go on and on and on about the Council's role in all kinds of different policies, especially war policies. Um, And I want to get deeply into their role in Vietnam eventually because it was quite the role indeed. And they also had their members in the government who, in the military, who was stopping us from winning. Of course, we shouldn't have been there in the first place, in my opinion. But they basically set it up as the first war that we fought that wasn't meant to be won whatsoever. And if you read James Perloff's uh, Shadows of Power, he explains that very well. He names names and dates and even has quotes from generals and different people who totally uh, present that argument. And also, as I try to point out, we talk a lot about the international bankers and banking and large corporations But we also talk about communism. Those subjects come up a lot when talking about the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, that goes against everything we've been taught because we're taught that big business, monopoly corporations, and banking has nothing to do with communism. But if you look at my episode called Bankers Love Communism, then you'll understand that that is totally false and has been uh, devised to keep the people from being suspicious of those big bankers and monopoly corporations and the CFR. Sermando Gonzalez wrote this book, uh, I Dare Call It Treason, The Council on Foreign Relations and the Betrayal of America in 2015. Uh, in the back, he mentions some of the big wigs, the big shots in the council. Now, the council has its individual members, which, as I've explained many times, are the who's who from different government administrations, presidential administrations, academia, uh, military, uh, media, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, But it also has their corporate members. You see here under founders, and this is easily looked up, guys. I talk about this all the time. Just go to CFR.org, look up their corporate membership, their board of directors, and their individual member roster. But anyway, he's got here Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Chevron, Exxon, Goldman Sachs, Hess, J.P. Morgan and Chase, McKinney and Company, the NASDAQ, Alcoa Inc., which is just a hop and a skip for me, American Express, Barclays, of course, BlackRock, Bloomberg, BP, Bridgewater, uh, Citibank, Coca-Cola, Dell, Deutsche Bank, DynCorp. Uh, trying to pick out the ones that you'll know of. There's a bunch Lazard, Lockheed Martin, of course, Mars Inc., McGraw-Hill, think, don't they make textbooks? Morgan Stanley, uh, Moody's Corporation, New Media Investments, um, Shell Oil, Soros Fund Managements, Standard Chartered Bank, Toyota, Veritas Capital. Uh, his, the premium members are Ace Limited, Airbus, uh, let's see, lots of stuff in here, but AT&T, Baker Capital, Bank of New York, Mellon Corporation, BASF Corporation, Blackstone, Boeing, Caterpillar, Cigna, uh, CIT. I mean, it just goes on and on. We're still in the seas, guys. All of these corporations and these banking firms investment firms, they support the wars 
and the communism and the push for a stateless or a uh, borderless world, which has a lot of problems in it, right? They support a type of communist government, but really what it's going to be as a one big private-public partnership or fascism. Now, they don't want to throw you in ovens like Hitler's fascism. They want to keep you as slaves and make you docile. They want to give you a little bit of money, a little bit of benefits in exchange for your obedience. It's pretty simple. It's pretty easy to point out. It's I've been following this stuff for 20-something years. In uh, Let's see. Let's see here. Let's get back to this uh, Economist Intelligence Group, Equinox Partners, Estee Lauder, FedEx, uh, General Atlantic, General Electric, Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, GlaxoSmithKline, Google, of course, Facebook, Hitachi, IBM, um, so many in here, Merck, of course, Mitsubishi, News Corp, of course, Occidental Petroleum, Pfizer, Pepsi, Palantir, Prudential, Raytheon, Rothschilds North America, uh, Sony Corp, Standards and Poor's, Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, Thiel Capital, that probably comes from Peter Thiel, uh, Time Warner, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, that's kind of weird, right? United Technologies Corporation, Volkswagen, Walmart, Warburg Pincus, Western Union, Xerox. Then you look at the associates. I'm sorry, I don't mean to bore you with this, but it just gives you the, uh, you, you understand how powerful the council is. It's not just a bunch of elite bureaucrats. It's also these large corporations that, that run the world, basically. AARP, big surprise there. They're known for their very progressive-leaning stances. Uh, Japan Bank, Oxford Analytica. And then that's when he gets into all the different CFRs that I mentioned earlier when I was talking to Jack. Um, but we'll go over the ones in the U.S. real quick, just one more time here. The Council on Foreign Relations, New York. The Council on Foreign Relations, Washington, D.C., Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Look out for that one. World Affairs Council of Northern California, San Francisco. Los Angeles World Affairs Council. World Affairs Council of Atlanta. World Affairs Council of Boston. Of Dallas-Fort Worth. Miami Council on Foreign Relations. Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations. Santa Fe Council on Foreign Relations. Seattle World Affairs Council. San Diego World Affairs Council, World Affairs Council of Philadelphia. Then he goes around the world to all the different ones there in the back of his book, and he gets into the cities that have their own Council on Foreign Relations sponsored councils. It's just amazing. They run the world, guys. This is the shadow government. These are the global elites. It is a cadre of institutions worldwide and citywide that are all connected. They all think alike, just like Cuddy says, personnel is policy. They came from the same schools, the same fraternities, and the same institutions, 
and then they go into your governments and your businesses, and they are creating this global corporatist technocratic government that we are seeing now under the Great Reset. Well, I think I've done enough damage for one episode. I mean, it's all here, guys. It's all here for any listener who wants to check this stuff out. And I would just ask you to please share this episode because I think, especially in this day and time right now where we are in history, if people have an open mind to want to understand the world and what really goes on behind governments and how governments really work, not this soap opera, not this political soap opera that we see playing out on the news. This is it. This is how our country has worked. Our world has worked. It's a network. It's not a conspiracy. It's all here. It's been documented for those that wish to see it. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. This is it, my friends. And once again, I want to really thank you for listening to this one. It probably got tedious with a lot of reading, but I think it's just it needed to be done. And uh, I hope that I can reach a bigger audience with this because it's very important. So there's a couple things to remember. One, I want to wish you cheers and blessings for this new year. Even though things look bleak, don't lose out all hope. Spread the truth as much as you can. Be relentless at it, but take care of your own. And remember, most importantly, their order is not our order. I hope to see you soon. Bye.